0: Our sermon text today is John 12. John 12 beginning in verse 37. And that is found in the Pew Bible on page 899. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Most people have social media these days, and everything out there is online, right? Really, you'd be surprised at the wealth of information you can find out about a person if you just look through their Facebook or whatever platform they're using But if everything is online, then that means nothing is hidden. And this has led to something that we now refer to as cancel culture. Maybe you've been a victim of cancel culture, but what happens is you're applying for a job or you're already working a job, and someone digs up dirt on you that you thought was hidden. You thought it was long gone. And it gets brought up at the most inconvenient time. Every time you turn around, a celebrity is getting canceled for something they said years ago. And some of you might have this fear that if you say the wrong thing or if you said something bad in the past, it'll get brought up at the most inconvenient time, and you'll be canceled. Um, It'll destroy your job or destroy your family even. And while we might think cancel culture is something new or modern, Something only that plagues us here today. In our text, we actually see the Pharisees had their own form of cancel culture. Because if the Pharisees found you supporting Jesus, or talking about him, then you'd be thrown out of the synagogue, which meant you'd lose all your friends, you'd lose all your family, and everyone would shun you. You're done. You're canceled. No one would associate with you anymore. So our text this morning shows us, and this is our main point, it is risky to respond to Jesus rightly. It is risky to respond to Jesus rightly. The proper response to encountering Jesus is faith, and a faith that makes a public profession of faith, regardless of what might happen to you, regardless of the consequences. And so we'll look at this text under four headings, Four points. First, the recap of Christ's ministry. Then, the response to his ministry. The redemption through his ministry. And finally, the risk of his ministry. So, the recap, response, redemption, and finally, the risk. However, not equal time will be given to each point. Our first point, the recap of Jesus' ministry, begins in verse 37. Um, where John John gives us a brief summary of his time with Jesus. He says, Though he had done many signs, they did not believe in him. Now this is interesting because out of all the signs that John could have recorded, he only records seven. In fact, chapters 1 through 12 is typically known as the book of signs. And this is because the seven miracles that John records provide the backbone of the progressing narrative. And then what comes after is typically known as the book of glory, and it contains the passion narrative of Jesus. And so in chapters 1 through 12, you're not, you're not getting it all. You're just getting the high, high points. And you can, I think it would be helpful to think of chapters 1 through 12 as Jesus' highlight tape. Like if you watch SportsCenter or ESPN and you have a favorite team, favorite player, Um, And you you get the highlight tape. Well, this is what John records for us in chapters 1 through 12, the high points of his ministry. And so not only does he give us the recap of his ministry, Jesus did many signs, but he also gives us the response to his ministry. Usually in a player's highlight tape, what is the crowd doing? They're happy, they're clapping, they're screaming, Right? But John paints an entirely different picture of Jesus' ministry. If we look at his ministry overall, then the response was unbelief. But it it didn't start that way. In fact, in chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine, what are we told? We're told that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There was belief at the beginning. But as time went on, people became more and more hostile to Jesus. It got to the point where they wanted to kill him. And that's what we see in chapter 11. When Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees, they wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. That's how mad they are at Jesus' ministry. And right before our text, John says, Jesus departed and he hid himself from them. In other words, there's, there's a price on his head. And if he doesn't get out, get out of there, they're going to kill him. And so Jesus, he goes off and he hides himself because his time had not come yet. And so John, he's been building this tension throughout his narrative. Chapters 1 through, two, one through 12 build tension until we get to our text. And, and in our text, John is providing a commentary. He's providing overall what what was Jesus' ministry like? How did people respond to it? This is John's commentary. And that commentary is unbelief. Um, maybe he, he's trying to answer a very specific question for his audience. Why didn't they not believe? Jesus did so many cool things. He walked on water. He healed people. He miraculously fed people. He was a good teacher. Why did they not believe? And maybe that's what—that's a question you have. Um, why do people not believe in Jesus? I love him. Like he's wonderful to me. But why is he not wonderful to other people? Why do—why do they not believe in him? You've likely heard it said before from an atheist or an agnostic well, if Jesus would just show himself to me, if he would just give me this really personal encounter with him, if he would just like write my name in the sky, then I would really follow him. Then I would believe. I would I would drop everything and believe in him then. They might say, well, the Bible's been translated and retranslated all these times. We can't really know um, if what they said was true. But if he would just come to me, If you would give me evidence, then then I would believe. Well, if if that's you today, if you think like that, then I have some news for you. Um, Jesus came and he did all of that evidence you're looking for. He did all those cool and spectacular things that you want him to do for you right now. And he did them for his own people. I mean, imagine that. He did those in front of his own people, and they still rejected him. And not only did they reject him, they killed him. Why, why do you think you would be any different? Why do you think you would respond any different than they did? Now, obviously, um, John is. Be, well, 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 John says that if you had written everything down, um, then not even, there aren 't enough books in the entire world that could contain it all, like Jesus did so many things but if i had if I had written it all down i couldn 't there aren 't enough books, and so the reason that people do not believe is not because they lack evidence that 's that 's john 's point here they they didn 't lack evidence, and people people today they do not lack evidence i 'll say that again the reason People do not believe in Jesus is not because they lack evidence. It's because they lack eyes and ears. Their eyes are blind and their hearts are hardened. John quotes Isaiah twice to show that Jesus did not fail. Things went exactly as they were supposed to go. They went exactly according to God's plan. The Jews did not believe because, as verse 38 says, so that the words of Isaiah might be fulfilled. There's intentionality and purpose behind their unbelief. And that purpose is that the word of God might prove to be true. There's not one failed prophecy in the Bible. God's word is true. Verse 38 continues. But who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so this quotation from John is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. It's from the famous suffering servant passage. And he's drawing on that context, drawing on Isaiah 53's context. Well, what's the context? Israel is once again unbelieving. And Isaiah pours out his heart to the Lord Lord why won't they listen I'm doing exactly what you told me to do but who has believed to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed and this phrase for arm of the Lord is called for salvation so he's saying Lord to whom has salvation been revealed Lord who are you saving right now this is a cry of desperation. Lord, you told me to preach, and, and yet no one's believing. It's, your word is life. Your word is powerful. And yet no one believes. Lord, you redeemed these people. You brought them through the Red Sea. You fed them, and you led them to the promised land. And yet they still reject you. And so this text not only has significance for Isaiah, But it also has significance for John because as John reflects on Jesus' ministry, he thinks, well, this sounds really familiar. A man who was rejected by God's people, he was sent to God's people, but they didn't want anything to do with him. And what comes to mind is Isaiah. Well, really what could have come to mind is most of the Old Testament prophets, but Isaiah serves a very specific purpose for John here. Not only did Israel not listen back then, but they're not listening right now. As verse 39 says, therefore they could not believe. And with these quotations, it's helpful to look at a parallel. So what what John is saying about Old Testament Israel, that's what he's saying about the New Testament Israel in, in his day and age. Therefore they could not believe. That they is Israel back then and it's them right now. And so we've been trying to answer the question of what happened? Why didn't they believe? Well, here's your answer. They could not believe. And this deals one deadly blow to the doctrine of free will, doesn't it? It says it right in the text. They could not. And this word could not could be translated unable. So they were unable to believe. The Bible teaches something contrary to the notion that man has an autonomous free will after the fall that if he if he was given the opportunity to choose between good or evil he could he could choose good he's not that bad after all he's not man's not really that bad that's entirely false that's not true because we know our reality after the fall don't we i mean how many times are have you tried to do the good and you, and you know that you can't. You are fallen. Your nature is corrupted. You and I by nature will choose slavery every single time we're not for God's grace. We are unable to choose God on our own. And in the time of Isaiah, Israel would, they would rather be enslaved to a foreign nation than turn to their God and be free. But the text goes a step further. Not only were they unable to believe, but verse 40 says God himself blinded their eyes. He hardened their hearts so that they would not turn to him. Now, on the surface, this appears like a problem. You might be thinking, doesn't God want his people to come to him? Doesn't he want them to repent? Doesn't he want to to restore them? That seems rather counterintuitive that he would Want them to come to him and yet blind their eyes and harden their hearts. And while that might seem counterintuitive to us, for God, there is no contradiction. There is no tension. And I think what's helpful in understanding and alleviating that tension that we might have is understanding the role of the Old Testament prophet. The Old Testament prophet was God's lawyer. And God would raise up a prophet and... The Prophet would have a case against Israel. And the Prophet would say, You guys need to shape up. God, God's going to give you what you deserve. His wrath is coming if you do not repent. And so the Prophet proclaims what is already true of the people. It's not as if God is creating evil in the hearts of his own people, in that hardening. We, we know that God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil. And yet, the prophet was used to harden the people. It was the message that the prophets proclaimed that hardened the people's heart. The prophets were the means by which they were hardened. And God would say, all right, if, you, if you're not going to believe, if you're not going to walk... How I've called you to walk, I'm going to give you what you're asking for, essentially. Not only does John recall this condemning aspect of Isaiah's ministry, but he also recalls the Savior whom Isaiah foretold. And this leads us to our third point the redemption through Christ's ministry. The content of Isaiah's ministry was nothing less than the hope in the Messiah. Isaiah foretold that there would come someone whom Israel would reject. That's what they do; they reject their messengers. But God, God knows that, and so God is going to send another messenger whose rejection would lead to Israel's salvation. And that's why Isaiah is, or that's why John is quoting Isaiah 53, and his audience would his audience would know exactly what he's quoting. Because in Isaiah 53 verse 2, so John quotes Isaiah 53 verse 1. And so his audience would think, well, what comes right after that? I know exactly what comes right after that. Isaiah 53 verse 2. And you've likely heard this verse before. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so John is trying to show his readers: yes, Jesus was rejected; yes, Israel has always rejected their messenger. But this messenger is different. They're going to reject this messenger, but it's going to and and out. It's going to work out for their good. It's not going to lead lead to their condemnation. It's not going to end in their slavery. It's going to end in their freedom. And Isaiah said these things because, as verse 41 says, he saw his glory. He saw his glory. The reason Isaiah spoke words of condemnation and salvation to Israel is because, as you can remember, Isaiah 6, right? He's taken up into the heavenly realm, and he beholds the king on his throne, And not only did he see the king high and lifted up, but he saw the journey and the path that he would take to redeem his people. He prophesied that one day this high and lifted up king would one day become low, very low. And yet lifted up on the cross, condemned to die for sinners like you and like me. And he would do this for sinners like us. People who, who, who rejected him. We don't want anything to do with him at times. Christ died while we were his enemies. How we did not, we, we had no good thoughts of him. That's when he died. That's when he was willing to do that for you. And so that's the glory that Isaiah saw hundreds of years ago before Christ was even born. And that's the glory John wants us to see right now. Christ's glory is manifest in his suffering death. It is in the lowest and darkest moment of Christ's ministry that his glory shines the brightest. We don't think of it that way, though, do we? we tend to think of His death as something sad. And that's true. We ought to think of it that way. But Christ's death is a manifestation of the glory of God. God's glory is, is being displayed. His glory is being displayed. And this idea of glory is unlike... Anything our culture has to offer. It's, un, it's unlike anything, our, anything that our culture can conceive of when it comes to glory. It's the, actually the exact opposite. And it's this glory that the authorities rejected in verse 42. They did not value this kind of glory. If they, would, if they did value it, they would have been willing to confess Christ before men, regardless of what happened to them. And this this leads us to our final point, the risk of Christ's ministry. As I said before, it is risky to respond to Jesus rightly. And we see that in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out, out of the synagogue. Now, understanding who these authorities are is key for understanding why they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. And the word for authorities here can be translated ruler. And this title ruler in, in the early church or in the synagogue context, it was a title of notoriety and honor. Very few people had this title. Um, it was typically held by older wise men or if a child came from a very prominent family, then they could one day become a ruler, um, but it's a very, very high title. Um, the equivalent would be "If you got a promotion at your job, because you're, everyone knows you're good at what you do, your boss knows you're good at what you do, and everyone goes to you when they have questions because they know they know you have the answers, right? And you can see why the authorities would not want to give up this kind of position. Um, and being kicked out of the synagogue, that would be giving it up. It would be worse than giving up that kind of position. Um, the title of ruler came, came with power and glory. You can imagine that feeling that you get. People come, people come to me when they have questions. Like, I'm, I'm the big guy. I, I know I know Torah. I can explain it to other people. And yet, they were not willing to part with this temporal glory of man for the eternal glory of God. And so what do they do? They were silent. They would not confess Christ before men. They would not confess their faith. John says, these guys believed. And yet they're doing something contrary to that belief. They checked all the boxes, right? They wrote for Gospel Coalition. They, they're on your favorite podcast. They can answer all, all of your theological questions you might have. And yet, when the going got tough, when the heat was turned up, right, they did not turn into diamonds. They were turned to dust. They would not profess Christ and they set a poor example for their flock because if the leaders are not willing to profess Christ if the the leaders are crumbling under pressure then why would the layperson confess Christ why would he be why would he think Christ was worthy Being put out of the synagogue was a very dangerous and scary thing. Um, The word to be put out is actually, could be translated excommunication. And if you're excommunicated from the synagogue, it's not like you can repent and come back. You know how the, the goal of Presbyterian discipline is so that you can be restored into the joy of fellowship once again. But if you're put out of the synagogue, then you're as good as dead, really. There's nothing left but the curse of God for you. Where where do you go? Are you going to go to the Gentiles? No, you don't like them, and they don't like you. And so if you're if you're out of the synagogue, then you you wander. You have no social support system. Like the the synagogue was where you were taught the word. It was where you prayed the word. It's where you hung out and had fellowship. It was where a Jew learned how to be a Jew. And I think when we look at the seriousness of being put out of the synagogue, we can see what the risk is um, in that time for confessing Christ. And that risk we might what might be upon us here today. And yet the proper response to Jesus is not fear but faith. We are called to believe and profess Christ whatever the circumstances. The authorities wanted to keep their high status they thought too much about what man thought and not, not enough about what God thought. And isn't that the temptation as Christians, right? You're with your non-believing friends and they revile Christ around you, and what are you tempted to do? Just remain quiet. You're tempted to not say anything. You're too afraid to speak up, because if people knew you were a Christian, then you, then you might then it might cost you. Then you might begin to lose some friends. And if that's you today, then I think John would tell you, stop caring about the glory of man. The glory of man is temporal. It's fleeting. It is incomparable to the glory of God. And you know it. You and I both know that the glory of man is really nothing compared to the glory of God. And what happens when you get that promotion, right, Or you, you, do, you make a really cool post on social media and a bunch of people are liking the post and it, it becomes viral, it blows up, and then a few days go by and the likes begin to die down at your job. No one's, begin, no one's going to you for questions anymore, it's just business as usual. And that's what the glory of man is like. It's not abiding. It might feel good for a little bit. And so this text addresses our sinful desire for man's glory above the glory of God. And the only cure for desiring the glory of man is to become captivated By the glory of God. And today you need to come know this glory of God. The glory of God comes born where the animals sleep. Not in a fancy palace. It comes clothed in in weakness. What does Matthew say? He had nowhere to lay his head. It looks like washing his disciples' feet. Even the feet of the one who would betray him. The glory of God hangs on the cross, battered and bruised for sinners like you and me. The glory of man looks out for his own interest and says, well, what's in it for me? How does it make me look? It looks for man's approval and man's applause. The glory of God says, Come to me, and I will give you rest from this pursuit for your own glory. I will give you a glory that lasts forever. I'll give you an unfading glory. I'll give you my very righteousness even. The glory that comes from God is Jesus Christ. He's a radiant of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he was willing to suffer for those who rejected him. And if he was willing to do that for you, if he was willing to do that for me, How fitting is it then that we believe in him? How fitting is it that we trust him when it gets tough? He suffered for you when you once hated him, when I hated him, and wanted nothing to do with him. And he's always loved us. We once hated him, and he's always loved us. Doesn't that give us motivation to profess Him before man? And you always do so with this promise that if you confess Christ before men, He will confess you before His Father. Let's pray. Father, you've been so good to us in sending your Son. We did not deserve him. You could have left us in our sin, and yet you are so gracious. You looked upon our state. Um, You looked on us when we did not want you, and yet you wanted us. So the proper response then is to believe you. It's to suffer for you. And yet we cannot do this on our own, and we know we do not do it on our own. For we have your Holy Spirit, and he gives us strength so that no matter what happens in our culture, no matter what adversity might come against us, we might stand boldly and proclaim Christ because he's worthy. I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and that we wouldn't just be mere hearers, but we would be doers. I pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.